what's up everybody i just want to thank you all for joining me on this week's episode of the things fall apart podcast uh this episode i have two amazing people joining me um first i want to uh, uh thank my friend jordan mcgowan uh coach mcgowan on twitter for being here but also for facilitating this great conversation jordan how you doing this morning i'm good i appreciate uh both of y'all i'm glad we could get everybody to sit down and and have this conversation. I think it's needed for the people. Yeah, thank you for it. And our, our guest today, because Jordan is our co-host, so our guest today is Mr. Billy X Jennings. Uh, how are you doing, Mr. Jennings? I'm doing well. Um, you know, I'm up and about, you know, um, taking care of, uh, working on a few projects, but yes, I'm doing sir. well. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm so thankful that uh, you were able to join me for this conversation. Uh, as soon as uh, Jordan asked me about it, I was like, yes, that would be great. Um, so we can let's, we can start this off uh, just simple. Where are you originally from? Where were you born? I was originally born in um, Anniston, Alabama, but okay. I grew up in Hopkins City, Alabama. Okay. I know where that is. I'm a Southern boy. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. So you understand uh, the significance of Hobson City? Uh, a little bit. I, I don't know the full story and everything like that, but I have done a little bit of research into Alabama. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was telling Stanley Nelson, who did a film, a documentary on the Freedom Riders, mm-hmm. that he should have extended that a little bit more and talked about Hobson City, because Hobson City is the at one time was the only black city in the south that black people controlled that they controlled the municipalities the sheriff department um and they could vote they were the only city in alabama that could vote as as we know later on into the 50s when the civil rights struggle started the big thing was to register people to vote but however the town i grew up in or came from had already had those privileges already one back in about 1899 yeah uh because that was an incorporation uh year correct yes okay yeah uh because i if i remember correctly um hobson city uh had i think it was like 13 or 14 black mayors before like 1970 or something like that uh, yes, most of the mayors were black. Yeah, um, yeah. For for a southern city, that is uh, still significant. I can think about Baton Rouge, and Baton Rouge just had their first two back to back. Basically, started in two thousand four, I believe. And so, Hobson City uh, did that way before we did. Um, right. Uh, I think a lot of southern cities are still under that uh, under that type of, of rule, though, where you really don't see uh, black people in high ranking city or state positions. No, no, you don't. But being from there uh, influenced my mother, which influenced me, you know, yeah. because she always had an attitude of. Uh, of not being uh, suppressed. You know, she always had that freedom. I'm not going to be controlled kind of attitude, you know, being from Hobson City. 
you know. So, so you, you know. So I grew up in Hobson City, and I we stayed there until about. I was born in 1950. Yes, sir. And so in 1955, uh, my dad was transferred to um, California. He had switched over from being in the army to being in the Navy. And then, and the Navy sent him to California. So we left Alabama just as the bus boycott in Montgomery was kicking off. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Right? And so one of the things that my dad promised my mother as she negotiated, because he wanted her to come out to California, uh, that he would buy her a living room set and a TV. <laughs> so my mother, so we got there in 1956. And, and the reason my mother wanted the TV is so she can keep up with the civil rights struggle that was going on in Montgomery and, and, and the rest of Alabama. Yes, sir. So I grew up watching TV alongside of my mother, uh, watching the civil rights struggle unfold as a kid. Wow. So, so no, that that's ve- actually very interesting. Um, because a lot of people can detail, um, like what was the thing that kind of radicalized them, or what was the thing that uh, made them knowledgeable about a certain situation. And uh, your stemming from your parents uh, is actually, I feel like, a very ideal situation, and how a lot of us should attain that information, but often it's not. Um, and I think part of that is because of the type of situations we find ourselves in as it pertains to like socioeconomic status and things of the sort. Uh, like I know for a fact, the first, uh, person in my life that I knew was, a uh, kind of radicalized, I'll say was my grandmother. Um, my grandmother was born in 1944, um, in Irwinville, Louisiana. Um, and she, her, her and her family made their way down to Baton Rouge eventually. And so my, my mother, uh, my grandmother was around participating in things at the same time. It's like H rap Brown. So she would be going from Baton Rouge to Alabama to DC, um, going all of these different places. And I, I know one time she told me, she was like, uh, I, I wouldn't, she was like, I wouldn't consider myself an activist. I would just consider myself a person who wanted to be available to be used. Um, and, right. and so that's kind of the first person that, or the first instance that I had of uh, understanding that my place as a black man, as a black person in society was different. And so eventually I would have to figure out some kind of way to be of use. Um, right. So, so my mother, so when we got to California and so, we watched the the five. Actually, that we watched the news every time it came on because at that time Walter Cronkite uh, was reporting what was going on in Alabama and Mobile and and uh, Birmingham and stuff like that. So my my mother had a real progressive attitude. She she was she was not a nonviolent person. She did not really like Martin Luther King's tactic of turning the other cheek. You got to remember, my, mother, my mother's 19 right now. You know, uh, when I was born, uh, uh, she's 19, going maybe maybe to 22 or something like that, right? So from the time we got to California and 
you know, she had already developed a self-defense kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. So when we got to California, my mother gave me the talk. (laughs) You know, just like the parents give their kids. My mother gave us a talk. My mother said something like, uh, we're in a new place. We don't have no relatives out here. We're out here by yourselves. Uh, You know, you know, you're going to be so you have going to have to defend yourself. And she went on like that. She says, I support you. If there's more than one, she told me what to do about that situation, too. And so I knew my mother had my back once I went out into the streets because being in the Navy or being stationed to a geographical base, you already have that built in racism there. Mm-hmm. So you got to come. I'm ready to battle <laughs> because yeah. you're going to have a fight the first day every time you move to another place. So my mother prepared for me for that. And whatever trouble I got in and defended myself, my mother had my back. Oh, wow. No, that, that, that's, that's great. Um, so your mother, she gives you the talk. She tells you she's there. So in essence, she's supporting you. Um, and, and your beliefs and your goals. So how did you originally get involved, uh, involved with the Black Panther Party? And I want to make sure I say this for the listeners because a lot of people will cut it off, but it is the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Um, that That's the original uh, full name. That was a lot, and a lot of people cut off that for self-defense part. <laughs> but well, you, actually, we changed that. We changed that name yeah. in 1968. Originally, uh, Hugh and Bobby, it was called Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. But after 1968, we viewed our position as more than a self-defense position, and, and, and we viewed ourselves as a political party. So we dropped off that self-defense, which was kind of like uh, kind of uh, pigeonholing us to one yeah. position. So we kind of dropped that in 1968. And yeah. and so it's, it, I was I was just about to ask: Is that part of the reason um, why the Black Panther Party went so much into like the mutual aid realm? Um, because I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe it the way you just described you it. As it? In, hello. Yeah, what'd you call it? Uh, mutual aid. Okay. <laughs> Basically, pro- 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 providing for the people. Okay. The Black Panther Party was always about that. Right. I mean, it's it's it, it specified in the ten point program that Huey P. Newton mm-hmm. Bobby Sims grew up in 1966. You know, at every point, that's what the Black Panther Party stood for. You know, so we were never we were never uh, against um, social programs. We were just a new organization, just on the scene, and we hadn't developed to that point yet. You know. So we, the Black Panther Party came on the scene. We just, we popped on the scene. We was not like um, SNCC or the NAACP who had been around for a while. They were another organization. Black Panther Party came on the scene in 66 and, and in dramatic style. And so we were a young organization learning. We were in a learning process, you know. So things we might have did in 66, we're not going to do them in 68 because we learned. Mm-hmm. We're developing. We're growing at the same time, you know. So things we might have did before, we might we're not going to do them again because we're learning from lessons we are learning, you know. 
you know. So, uh, you know, the party was part. The party was always developing and growing. But what led me to the party was um, the Vietnam War. Okay. You know, so if, we, if we're going to skip up from from my childhood up to why the reason that what the party was attracted to me it was the Vietnam War, nineteen sixty-eight. In nineteen sixty-eight, I was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. Right, nineteen sixty-eight. For those who don't know, was a big year in terms of the Vietnam War, uh, the draft, and anti-war protesting. Big year because in nineteen sixty-eight, in January sixty-eight, the Vietnamese had the tech attack. You know, right? they started fighting back all over Vietnam and. Uh, General Westmoreland, the general that was in charge of Vietnam, suffered a lot of losses, and he said they were going to need another 250,000 troops. You know, and I was a senior at that time, 17, 18 is when you go down to the Selective Service Board, for those who don't know, and register for military service in America. So that that's already a law. But my, this particular year, 1968, they're coming out with a new draft system, right? So me and my best friend decided to move away from the town we were in to a bigger city so our numbers wouldn't come up as fast, so we thought, right? So we decided to move from San Diego to Oakland, California. And so the year 1968, uh, I graduated in June. I uh, my teacher, my English teacher, but 1968 again is a big year because the Vietnam War is raging. Martin Luther King is killed in April of 1968, which is the year I'm graduating. Two days later, the police kill a Panther in Oakland called Bobby Hutton, first member to join the Black Panther Party. You know, so throughout my before I graduate, all these historical events are happening. And so when I graduate, the night I graduated from high school, my English teacher gave me uh, a book to read, to have, and, you know, as a personal gift. And the name of that book was The Autobiography of Malcolm X. So the night I graduated from high school, I jump on a Greyhound bus and head to Oakland to meet my partner, who already has a pad in, in Oakland. So I come to Oakland in June of 1968. I registered. Uh, for college at Laney College. Laney College is one of the two city colleges in the city of Oakland. The other college is called Merritt College. Merritt College is on the other side of town, North Oakland. That's where Huey Newton and Bobby Seale went to and started the Black Panther Party. We had a lot of Black Panther Party members come from Merritt College. But however, I was at another college, Laney College, which was close to downtown. So it's June of 1968. I'm sitting in my criminology class, my 11 o'clock to my 11.50 class, and I hear, free Huey off the pig, free Huey off the pig, and it's echoing throughout the campus. Now, the Alameda Alameda County Courthouse, where Huey Newton's court is, uh, is at and where he's held prisoner at is three blocks away. So... You hear, I'm sitting in my class, and you hear, free Huey, free Huey. 
and you hear chants and so forth. So when class is over, me and my partner bounce out of class and we follow the sound. And it was the opening day of Huey Newton's trial. I've seen Panthers standing on the Alameda County Courthouse. I've seen sisters on the steps chanting. It was about, well, actually, that was the first mixed rally I ever seen, you know, with black people, white people, Asian people, Mexican-American people holding signs, uh, wanting Huey Newton, this guy Huey Newton, to be free. So that was my introduction into Oakland. You know, so I, the trial starts, and what happens is my next-door neighbor is a leading member of the Black Panther Party. He, His name is Andrew Austin. He's like the distribution manager of the Black Panther Party newspaper. And I know this because he drives a big van that says Black Panther Party newspaper on it and parks in our parking lot every day. So uh, one thing led to another. To reading the book on Malcolm X and, and I started attending the rallies, I, Malcolm was saying the same thing the Panthers were saying. They both were saying more or less the same thing. And so I got interested in the Panther philosophy because of the 10-point program. So one day, uh, my neighbor invited me to a political education class he was having at his house. And he went over the 10-point program. And I was kind of excited. And he said, well, if you're interested in this, we're having a rally Saturday. So he, he and another Panther came and picked me up and took me to my first Panther rally in, I think, July of 1968, right? And what really pulled me to the party was the Black Panther Party 10-point program. They were, like, point number six was we want all black men zipped for military service. I'm 17 years old. That's hitting home. I, you know, now I realize there's a group of people who's against the war like myself. So I'm... For that, that that's what really attracted me because I was against the war. Uh, I I didn't feel that black people should fight in the war, and I was against the war because Muhammad Ali was against the war, and at that time, he was my one of my heroes. So if he wasn't going to fight the war, I wasn't going to fight the war. Yes, sir. Okay, so I think well, I think too. And this is a conversation that I've had um, with with you, Mr. Jennings, um, is that Mr. Jennings was taught um, in high school by someone who, you know, also was able to influence his politics. Right. And like it speaks to the importance of like uh, black radical educators. Mm -hmm. Right. And I would love if you could uh, tell a little bit about, you know, who your P.E. teacher was. Okay, well. Because. My dad was in the military. Uh, one of the places we were shipped to was a place called Lamore, California, which is in San Joaquin Valley. It's about 40 miles from a city, from Fresno. But there's a military base there, and my dad was stationed there. And so being stationed there meant that I had, the nearest school was an in-town school called Lamore High. And when I was a freshman, uh, uh, actually, before I was a freshman, when I was going to summer school as a junior high school person, I met this guy named Tommy Smith. In our area, he was the best athlete around. He was a track person. He could play football. 
And so when I got to be a freshman, he was a senior and he was out the door. Right. So by the time I was a sophomore, I mean, uh, I had got to know Tommy Smith very well. Right. And as a young person, as a freshman, I used to get into a lot of fights because I didn't take the N word. I had an attitude. And Tommy being my PE teacher, he would say, hey, you have to pick your own battles. You have you can't fight everybody at the same time. Right. So he took that with him. And when he graduated, he went to San Jose State College that next year. They had the, the black athletes boycott of 1968. He and a guy named uh, John Carlos went down to the Olympics in, in New Mexico and he won gold and he and and uh, John Carlos won uh, uh, silver. Right. I think. And uh so on the stand, they raised their fist up to show they was in unity with the struggle back home and got kicked out the Olympics. But that's been a landmark poster and signal for black unity for the last 50 years. And I'm so proud that I kind of knew him. He, Tommy Smith was the kind of, he was the person who kind of started kind of enlightening me to what was going on, you know? So I attribute some of my first, political understanding from this brother and his record still stands to date, you know, uh, because in the next Olympics, they, he ran the 220 and the 440, right? And because everything went down to meters, they changed everything to meters. The race he used to run is, is called the 400 now, but in the Guinness Book of Rose World, World Record, there's always asterisk there with his name. Like they don't run that race anymore, but he still holds the record. But he was very important to me at that time because I was still I was learning knowledge and gaining political understanding of what was going on, and he was a great help to me. Wow. <laughs> uh, so it seems that at different points in your life, you had someone giving you some type of, as Jordan put it, uh, radical political education. Um, and I guess I actually want to go off topic for a second um, with your storyline uh, timeline, but ask you the question of since you were able to be influenced by uh, so many different people in your life, um, how do you feel like you've used that experience to influence others? Um, through my social practice, yeah. put my knowledge into action, you know, uh, the things I've learned, I try to, you know, get to, uh, I try to teach young people by example and by actions um, correctly of dealing with situations, right? So that was, that's my thing is to, my give back is like the website that you're on. My give back is talking about my experiences, you know, how the Black Panther Party went about doing the things that we did. Even though we were a relatively small organization, we had a big voice in the community because our actions spoke louder than our words. Mm -hmm. You know, breakfast program, I worked on the very first one in 1969 at St. Augustine Church under Father Earl Neal. Father Earl Neal now is Desmond Tutu's 
assistant in South Africa. But at that time, he was running, running St. Augustine Church, and we started the first free breakfast program there. And kids from in America for the last 50 years have had the opportunity to have a nutrition, a nutrition this breakfast given to them because the Black Panther Party set the example. So those kind of things are, are I feel, a part of, you know, that we help pioneer this institution to give back to the community, to help young people um, get fed before they go to class. Because as a student yourself, you know that, hey, if you don't have food in your stomach, you, mm -hmm. you're really uh, um, not paying attention. Your mind is other places. So yes. too much to me is to, to give back, you know, giving back to the community, you know. No, so Jordan, um, I know you have your neighbor program. Could you speak to how you have been influenced by the Black Panther Party and the work of people like Mr. Jennings? I mean, just to be able to sit on a call like this, right, and just soak up game from like uh, a veteran, right, in this struggle. Um, I know a lot of us talk about it like this war for freedom, this war for liberation, and it really is, right? And it's this long journey. It's this Holocaust is genocide of our people, but um, like the legacy that folks like Mr. Jennings and his comrades in the in the party left us um, is something that allows us to push forward. Um, and and it, and it's also part of revolution, right? Like it's that it's us getting back to who we are indigenously, right? And like like as Africans, right? us sharing this knowledge, you know, in community. Um, and Mr. Jennings provides so much insight for us. Uh, we, you know, we go to him with questions and ask, hey, how can we implement this? He gives us books to read and, you know, they answer questions. I mean, and, um, you know, we're able to uh, meet, you know, different folks who can give us different wisdom. And so um, it's beautiful. And it's, and it, it's something that I know our program doesn't take uh, for granted, right? And we try to um, do whatever we can to really just appreciate and like give them their flowers while they're here because um, these folks have sacrificed so much and committed mm -hmm. their life to the revolution and to the liberation of the people. And um, there's just so much we owe them. And so I just, I'm so appreciative. I'm so appreciative and it and it motivates me and inspires me every day to wake up and um and keep working. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally understand because Mr. Jennings just talked for like five or six minutes straight, and I was just sitting here in awe, uh, listening to him connect the dots of his life like that. But it's like uh people like you, Jordan, inspire me because I feel like okay. I'm doing this work, but maybe there's a better way I could do it. Maybe there's a more impactful way I can do it. Um, and I feel like that's what's important. I always think about uh, number 10 on the Black Panther Party 10-point program, and as we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, and ju justice and peace. And when I think about it, that's, that is the what we call the struggle. And, you know, if, as we exist in America in this, uh, you know, capitalist, racist society, these are things that have been held from us. I was just laughing last night. Uh, because everyone was talking about the, the Senate bill that passed and I could only think about the stuff that was left out. <laughs> it, it, you know, uh, it's like we basically get fed crumbs and we're, we're supposed to accept it. 
Um, but you have people in the community who are doing work in a different way, in a better way where they're providing directly to the people. Um, so Mr. Jennings, I'm going to come back to you. And uh, so you started, you joined the Black Panther Party in 1968. Um, could you explain some of your tenure there? Cause you were in the Black Panther Party from 68 to 74 or, or, or what was it? Right. 68 to 74. And like I said, like being in the Black Panther Party for one year is like being anywhere else for about three years. The intensity, the pressure uh, put on the Black Panther Party by outside forces like the government, the police, different agencies. But it never stopped us from doing our doing our work. One of the things that the party I contribute to the party is the party helped educate the community, make the community aware of what was going on. And one of the first things that the part, the biggest thing the party was did was the educational program, you know, identifying the enemy. You know, it, it's our job as a vanguard organization to lead the people. And one of the things we had to do is define who our enemy is, right? Because at that time, you know, uh, Black Panther Party believes in unity. We believe in um, uh, workers, you know, regular people controlling their own destiny. So one of the things we had to identify to people is that not all white people or people who are not black are your enemies, mm-hmm. right? That we had we had to identify the enemy, make it plain to them. And the enemy uh, is a capitalistic businessman that. You know, the avaricious business people, the corporations uh, that run America, they control the political scene, the the lying politicians, such as the the politicians that we have. uh, uh, For example, uh, we had a president that was, for the last four years, he's exactly what we're talking about, being a lying politician, misrepresenting the facts and being a racist, right? Also... Another part of that triangle, as we call it, the triangle of death, is that the political situation and the economic uh, people control the police department. So you have business, you have uh, capitalism, the business people, you have the lion poli- political system that's set up to serve the economic system, and they control the police department. And the police department is uh, racist. You know, they enforce the policies of the ruling class. So our job was to educate people that not all people are the same. That, like Malcolm said, you judge people not by their color, but by their deeds and by their actions. Mm -hmm. So being the children of Malcolm, we employed that. So we were able to come up and work with many different groups within our community or outside of our community. In fact, the word used today, Rainbow Coalition, is a Black Panther invented word by a brother named Fred Hampton. Mm -hmm. You know, and Rainbow Coalition, it means many people working together for the same aim. So in, in the city of Chicago, just like in the Bay Area, we were able to unify with progressive people on the left at Berkeley who were anti-war. And we were able to uh, unify with people in the community like Mexican-Americans, like the United Farm Workers, the Brown Beret, the Young Lords, 
uh, white groups like the white patriots, uh, like the young patriots, not the white patriots, but the young patriots, young progressive groups. So the Black Panther Party made many contributions in terms of understanding and bringing people together. And that was, you know, that was our goal, more or less. A lot of people say our goal was to overthrow America. Our goal was not to overthrow America because we don't ha we can't go bullet to bullet with the American system with the uh, American army. But what we can do is educate people to the fact of why we need to change the system, and then the people themselves will try will, will change the system. But we have to give them guidance, you know, and so. My, you know, when you first come into the Black Panther Party, you just can't walk in off the street and say, hey, uh, I'm a Panther. No, 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 no. You have six to eight week training, you know, and one of, and the, the, the main thing is the political education classes. The political education classes that the Black Panther Party teach is the glue, is the foundation of, uh, of our understanding. So by attending the political education classes, uh, one of the things you have to do is to read the Black Panther Party newspaper before you go sell the Panther paper, right? Uh, when you walk in the door, they give you a list of 35 books. Some of them books are like books by Franz Fanon, you know, Wretched Earth, Dying Colonialism. You know, there's books by Du Bois. There's books by Chairman Mao Zedong, uh, Fidel Castro, about other revolutionaries or people who who led successful revolution, you know? Uh, so reading was very important. In fact, a Panther had to read two hours a day by himself to keep abreast of what was going on in the ever-changing world. Two, a Panther had to get and obtain a firearm because we are a self-defense group. We believe in self-defense. You have to obtain a gun. You have to learn gun safety. You have to go to the range and learn marksmanship, you know, which is mandatory. You know, every Panther in training is given a geographical area to work in. So um, if you're, you were a Panther, you might be given maybe a 20 block or 10 block area to work. So that means you go door to door. That means you attend meetings in that area. That means you even go to the high school and try to organize BH black student unions if they don't have one, you know? So those are some of the things you have to do in order to become a Panther. And so after six weeks of training or eight weeks of training, uh, uh, your supervisor will give you a yay or nay thing, or they might tell you you need to do some more work in the community before we give you a membership. So becoming a party member in 1968 was like, was no cakewalk. So you had to like want to do it, you know, and 1968 was a year for me because once summer was over and school had started, uh, my six weeks was up and I became a Panther, right? And so uh, selling the Black Panther Party newspaper was a big thing to show your loyalty to the to the party. This is way before uh, we had any social programs. So the Black Panther Party new newspaper became the voice 
of the party. And the Black Panther Party newspaper was printing out maybe 300,000 papers a week, which made it the number one black-selling weekly newspaper in America from 1968 to 1971. We were outselling Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine. Because at that time, the growth development in the Black Panther Party, we had over 48 offices in 40 cities in America. So that's a lot of newspapers going out all over America. After selling papers on campus, BSU selling Black Panther Party newspapers on campus. So that was a way that the party raised money because uh, the paper sold for 25 cents. It came out every week. Uh, the person selling the paper could keep a dime. You know, so that became a way for party members to survive to an extent, because if you sold 100 Panther papers, which is not a hard feat to do, that means you got $10 of 1968, 1968 money. Now, back in those days, I mean, you couldn't buy a car or make your mortgage payment, but you can do a lot with $10 a day if you was a student. Because I remember when Danny Glover was going to San Francisco State College before he became a big-time actor, he used to come to the San Francisco office and get 100 newspapers every week and sell them at San Francisco State College just so he could have money because he was broke. So that was a way for people in the community to uh, raise money, too, because we had a lot of young people come to the office. The same kids that were attending the breakfast program, they came to the office and got 10 or 15 papers because in our community, not a lot of kids were getting uh, allowances. So this was a way to go down to the local news, uh, local store, a grocery store, and sell 25 or 50 pounds of papers and make $5. So, you know, the pamphlet paper was uh, uh, was enjoyed throughout the community. People was making money. Uh, people was getting educated. You know, so as a panther in training, you saw all this. And every morning when you woke up, you felt good about yourself because you were making change. You were heightening people's political uh, level of understanding. You were feeding young people breakfast in the morning. You were registering people to vote. We had a senior escort program where we escort seniors. Now, this program came about because the senior citizens brought it, it to us. Now, most panthers are... 18, 19, 20. You know, that was our average age. We were a youth organization. I mean, we had people in our in our group that was older, like Elders Cleaver. He was like 33 or 34. We called him an old man. You know, we called him Papa, you know. But most, most Panthers were young, so we didn't know what the older people was going through. Now, we come to find out that in the first five days of the month, there would be a spike in crimes against senior citizens. That's because they got their Social Security, their unemployment, or their retirement checks all at the beginning of the month at that particular time. And there's elements in our community that prey on uh, older people, uh, uh, people who can't defend themselves. So a lot of people at that time was getting their purchase snacks and so forth. So the Black Panther Party stepped up to the plate and said, okay, Anybody who calls us on the first five days of the month, we will come pick you up and take you to get your check cash and take you to the store and get your groceries. Now, that turned into a big social program. Now, I don't know any city in America that don't do that for senior citizens now, but the example came from the Black Panther Party. 
you know, because people started trusting the party. We're feeding their kids. You know, we're taking care of the senior people in their family. We have a busing program in case someone went to jail or so forth. We go to a different prison every week. All you have to do is come down and get on the bus. And that way we were keeping the family unit together, you know, because we all know that black people are victimized more than what our percentage of population is in America. You know, our population might be 18, 19, 20 percent, but the population in prison is 50 to 60 percent Black people are, are people from oppressed communities. So all these programs that we started, it took time for them to develop because we started out with just two guys in our organization, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. So it took a, 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 a took some time from 1966 to maybe 1970-71 to establish a lot of these programs because the government was attacking our officers as well as lying about us at every turn. Yeah. Uh, I, when you say when that last statement, uh, when you talk about the government coming into office and lying, um, something that I've always wondered about, uh, being from Louisiana, and I know uh, Brother Huey P. Newton uh, was from Monroe originally, is we had this thing here called the Deacons for Defense and Justice. And the Deacons of Defense and Justice was a organization that only lasted about four years uh, at an active level from 1964 to 1968. Um, but they were originally, uh, they started being spied on by uh, the FBI in like 1965. And their whole the whole point of their organization was simply... Um, to make sure that they can kind of strategize against the Klan, but help people, black people in the community uh, be careful. And I know one of the big texts that they read was um, Negroes with guns by uh, Robert Williams. And so listening to uh, you tell your story, um, there is uh, a lot of similarities between uh, the black Panther party and the Deacons for defense and justice. Um, and so I just wanted to add, like, that was very interesting to me because it's always something I thought about. I've always wondered if, uh, possibly if Dr. Uh, Newton was inspired by something that was going on in his home state. And also hearing that you were from, uh, Hobson city, Alabama, I know there was some, uh, groups that came through, uh, Alabama that also practice, uh, and it existed just for self-defense. They weren't a violent people. They were just there as a deterrent. Um, to racist action. Right. Yeah. Now, in, in, in 1960, <clears throat> in 1965, and I do believe, in 1965, um, black, black people was given the right, black people was given the right to vote, right, in August, right? And so, in, in in the Bay Area during that particular time, there was a, a number of tornadoes and that blew into Mississippi and and destroyed a lot of sharecropping land. Now, the point I'm, I want to make is most members of the Black Panther Party, their roots are in the South. Mm -hmm. Like I talked about myself. We talked about Huey from Monroe. Uh, Bobby Sill was from from Texas, mm -hmm. right? 
uh, a bunch of Carter was from Louisiana. Geronimo Pratt was from Louisiana. So most of our family roots are in the South, but we had part of, we had people in our family who migrated out to California during the second great migration. So because so you have so many people coming from the South to the Bay Area because uh, there was a war going on, the Korean War and World War II, uh, they needed a surplus of men there. And a lot of Blacks filled that void because a lot of American white men were out fighting the war, and they were still discrim discriminating uh, in the ranks of the United States Army. So a lot of Blacks wasn't on the front lines, and a lot of Blacks could get jobs they needed in these factories. So a lot of families came out to California to work in the military industrial complex in the Bay Area. And so they were able to get civil service jobs because Truman at that time signed a bill saying that any American could become a civil service worker without discrimination. So that led to a hiring of a lot of blacks and a lot of blacks did come to the Bay Area to work on the ships and in the military complex, which brought a lot of jobs, right? So originally, most of the people, like I said, was from the South. And so being from the South and trying to organize in a new spot, uh, they know they, they knew they had to have a sterner tactic, that they couldn't take the same mess that was going on back at home. So Huey Newton taking law, right, found out you can carry guns in the open. Now, one of his teachers, is his uh, his professor was a guy named Ed Meese. You ever heard of Ed Meese? No, sir. Ed Meese at that time was a assistant district attorney for the Alameda County, working under a guy named Lowell Jensen, who pro he's the one who prosecuted Huey. Mm -hmm. But this guy, Ed Meese, was teaching Huey law at Hastings Law School at nighttime, right? And so at me as Huey one day said, why are you asking me all these things about procedure? And, and, uh, and he says, well, we're going to start an organization and uh, we need to know how far we can stand from the police and all these different laws. Right. And so, but the story about Ed Meese, Ed Meese is, was a right winger, but he knew law. So he taught Huey the basic elements of law, which he took back out into the streets. Now, one of the things that history has done was dissect that law book away out of Panthers' hands. When the Panthers went out to patrol police, we always had law books to read the law to the police because the police actually do not know the law. They're not, I mean, they're not really educated at all, you know? So we had to have the law book there, right? Mm -hmm. And what we were reading was, uh, was the Miranda Law, the Miranda Law had just came into being in 1966, and that's what Healy and Bobby was telling people. They were out patrolling the people, uh, the cops, and telling people that they don't have to uh, talk to the police, that they can have a lawyer and stuff like that. But the police wasn't telling people that. Mm -hmm. They were still threatening people, like, if you don't do what I say, we know the judge, we'll make it go bad for you and stuff like that. So the the whole process of educating people about the law was one of the first things the Panthers did because you had a lot of brothers and sisters 
who were new to the state of California. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure uh, those conversations and that education from Ed Meese may have helped. Uh, was it 1970 when the community uh, control f- f- of police proposal came? Uh, right. And right. I, if if I'm correct, and you, please correct me if I'm wrong, it was about a community review board. It was about uh, jurisdictions that police patrolled, and it was about comp- uh, filing complaints. Right. The the three elements of community control. Now, this is like another thing that people don't know about. Now, the Black Panther Party, it took 15,000 signatures to get that on the ballot. Mm-hmm. So there's 15,000 people in the city of Berkeley signed a petition to say they want community control of police because because Berkeley had gone through People's Park anti-war thing where police and sheriffs come and shoot up the residents and so forth. So Berkeley was ready for this, right? And so the three elements of the community control of police where people had control was a police review board with the ability to hire and fire. Two. The police had to live geographically in the area they patrolled. So if you lived in Berkeley, I mean, if you patrolled, if you patrolled in Berkeley, you had to live in Berkeley. And the logic for that is a person staying in, in the community is more apt to deal with things in a less hostile way than a person who, are, who don't live in the community and have a bad attitude. You know, or a racist attitude. And the other thing is that that uh, that there will be po- there, there will be substations in the community so that people, instead of taking a whole day off to go downtown, to go to a substation, file their grievances and uh, or complaints. Now, even though it lost on the ballot, those three things that was the first time in America that people ever had a choice to vote on what type of police department they want. Now, even though it lost on the ballot, it's still alive today because community control of police is the mother to uh, defund the police. Mm-hmm. You know? So the things that we worked on many years ago, uh, they are still alive. If you draw the thread back to when these things happened or how this came, thing came about. You know, so the legacy of the Black Panther Party, it still lives on in so many ways, you know, and we have yet to talk about the medical thing. You know, the Black Panther Party had 13 medical clinics, 13 and two are are still open to this very day. One in Portland, which is a dental clinic, and the other one is in Seattle, in the Central District downtown. Now, that clinic has been open since 1969, and it directly was opened by Black Panther Party. That It's named after a Black Panther Party sister, you know? So the legacy of the party reaches the community in so many ways, you know? Like point number five talks about education. You know, we want decent education that teaches us the true nature of America. We want education that exposes and teaches us our role in American society. Now, taking number five, for instance, let's go back to 1968 again, that year. In 1968, Black Panther Party members, along with students at San Francisco State, went on strike to develop an ethnic studies department. 
Took them all year. They won that strike. So in the state system in California, there was a new department called Ethnic Studies. The very next year, 1969, UC Berkeley went on strike for Ethnic Studies, and it, they won it. So in the UC system in the state of California and in the state system, they won Ethnic Studies. And so how California goes, the nation goes. So you have to contribute what the people did in Oakland, I mean, in, in Berkeley and in San Francisco, to a new department called Ethnic Studies, in which maybe 3,500 people got tenure, new people mm -hmm. had tenure in jobs teaching at, teaching about their community. So there's a lot of, of roots, things that the party did that the community is benefiting today from, mm -hmm. you know? And that's one in education, like Black Student Unions, you know? Black Panther Party was a big force to create black student unions on all campuses in America. You know, so that, that those things that make me feel good that I was a Panther, the fact that, you know, the Black Panther Party took on sickle cell anemia, you know, but prior to Black Panther Party, people didn't know what sickle cell anemia was. You can go to the doctor and, and get analysis from the doctor, and he couldn't tell you he had sickle cell because he didn't know what it was. You know, so the sickle cell awareness, uh, all the health things that the party did, you know, to make the community a better place. Now, these are things we wanted to do from the get go, but mm -hmm. it took time for those things to develop, for things to fall into place. You know, having, you know, a lot of the people have genius ideas, but it takes maybe some time for them ideas to come into real practice. You know. Yeah, Jordan. Uh, coming off of what Mr. Jennings just said about education, uh, could you please talk about decolonizing the classroom? Um, I know that's something we discussed previously, but I feel like you could uh detail it in a better way than I can. Yeah, and I mean, it really is. An, it's an inspiration. So again, to just like double down on what uh, Mr. Jennings said, like it's all really an inspiration from the party, right? Like this idea that um, we need to recapture our true identity, our true history, and we need to tell that true history, right? Um, instead of instead of telling this colonized version of history, right, where um, we convince everyone that they're American, right? They're not American, they're Africans, or, you know, they're indigenous to wherever they are. Um, in, you know, America itself, right? it's Turtle Island. And so this, this idea that we should teach um, from like an internationalist framework, right? Like mm -hmm. not from inside this colonized view of what this, this genocide of a people is, right? Um, if this was going on somewhere else in the world, this is not how it would be taught, <laughs> right? If, if people were kidnapped from their home continent and enslaved, Right. And then there was a people genocided here. And then, you know, there was all these and, and continued oppression and police brutality and political prisoners. The world would would be in arms. Right. But because it's America, so-called America. Right. It's justified to have this land from sea to shining sea. Um, you know, it's manifest destiny. And um, I think, again, point five speaks exactly to that. Right. 
Um, and then once the people are educated enough, right, then we can get to, to point 10 where they're going to decide we're going to decide what's going to happen from here on out because we realize that we're no longer American, right? We've realized that we are colonized Africans or colonized people from wherever we're from. And, you know, now we are going to fight for that land sovereignty or that, in, you know, that, that real freedom, <laughs> that yeah. real freedom. It's like when you, uh, when you say that, it always reminds me of that old quote, um, until the lion learns to write, Every story will glorify the hunter. And when yeah. you talk about colonization, I think of, I think about America in context with that quote right there, because that's exactly what happens. Uh, America has. I, and I think about like Britain, Americans coming from Britain basically because they were scared and then trying to colonize the rest of the people. Um, so I think that's always an interesting story. But this conversation has uh, touched a lot on the legacies of the Black Panther Party. Number one, we see that in someone like Jordan's work. Um, but Mr. Jennings also details how a lot of stuff that we see today, um, such as uh, the educational, uh, certain types of education, um, free, free lunch and breakfast, et cetera, et cetera, how a lot of these things stem from the Black Panther Party and the legacy that they have created. And under that, guys, I would like to ask Mr. Jennings, um, how do you feel about the representation of the Black Panther Party in media. Because um, one thing I see right now is there are a lot of movies and TV shows and stuff coming out about radical figures. Um, but of course, they're whitewashed in a way uh, to make them suitable for white Americans to view it also. Um, what do you think about that? Well, that's been a problem all along, right? But like like it says, until the lion learns to write, right? And so most of the books are put out by the winners, right? So uh, our history is just coming out now, you know, because you can't hold truth down forever, you know. Uh, even though there are some derogative things uh, out about the party, it, it would lead people to be aware and do a little further research. You know, this current movie out that kind of deals with Fred Hampton. Uh, I hope it would lead to people to actually go listen to his speeches, to actually go view the murder of Fred Hampton, to find out a little bit more about him that, you know, that's on TV. But, to me, it's all an educational process, you know. Uh, I, I tell you, five years ago, in 2016, when Beyonce did the halftime thing at Super Bowl, you know how many, how many people that reached? Yeah. You know, uh, it reached a lot of people. It gave them, because the, in the Black Panther Party, we say information is the raw material for new ideas. So once that information went out across TV and that people saw that it was a Panther thing, even the brother on the block who might be on social conscious whatsoever, know, hey, we should respect the Panther. At least Beyonce is kicking that out, you know? So those kind of things, you got to take the, the positive, 
I don't, you know, because we, we don't control the media. Every once in a blue moon, you might find a video or documentary that speaks to truth to power, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, even the movie Van People made in 1995 uh, it is not a true depiction of the Black Panther Party, nor either either is it a documentary. But within that particular film, they explore the Black Panther Party 10-point program. They talk about the Black Panther Party social programs. They talk about COINTELPRO, the influence of the FBI, and so forth within that film. So it might have some Hollywood tendencies, big shootouts and all that kind of stuff, but there are some nuggets to be found, you know? So until we have the money to make our own film, that's this is what's going to happen. You know, there's some documentaries that came out like the the Vanguard that kind of mm-hmm. puts his finger on what was going on at that particular time. But young people know a lot about the party now and more and more people are finding out every day, you know, about the influence of the Black Panther Party. Now, the Black Panther Party was not a big organization with a lot of members. We just had influence. Mm-hmm. We know how to get people out. We knew how to talk to people, how to rally people from the community, from the neighborhoods, from the street corners, you know, because they listen to what we have to say because what we are already doing. Mm-hmm. When people have problems with the police, they come to the Black Panther Party office. We have connection with the Lawyers Guild, with the ACLU and, and organizations like that, you know? So people... Uh, relate to the legacy of the Black Panther Party in so many ways. And it keeps going on through family generations. You know, they pass it on to one person, to another person. Because I was talking to a young brother one day, and he was telling me his grandmother told him about the Panthers, that when she needed food, that the Panthers would would, uh, bring food to her house. You know, and I don't know how long that story's been in that family. Because, you know, we ain't did that in a long time. But mm-hmm. this young boy knew about that. Yeah. So, you know, it's important what you do, you know? Yeah. So I'm actually glad that you mentioned it that way. Because uh, I'm the type of person, I go down rabbit holes. It's like once I'm interested in something, I try to find out as much information as possible about it. Um, and so I remember uh, in around around 2013, uh, I sought out the 1990 film, 1995 film uh, Panther because I was trying to find as much like information on the Panthers as possible. So I was literally like reading every book I could find or watching every movie or documentary that I could about the Panthers. Um, because I in my life, I have an interesting upbringing where I, I grew up in um a christian home in a christian a christian city going to christian schools and often the plights of people that look like me were left out of the discussion um right and, and so one of the things that kind of radicalized me to a point was um not being able to see myself uh in in church in school um in the city in general and the first thing that i thought about was about how um, someone like Malcolm X or how a group like the Panthers were so uh, your self identity was so strong. And I feel like for a lot of young, uh, young black people, we we always are trying to find ourselves. We're trying to find out who we are 
what's our purpose um and so for me it was kind of like a the, the panthers was kind of like a self-love thing um even with like that fictionalized 1995 film i enjoyed i i i, I was i was happy about being able to see people like me who were so strong and i right. guess i guess that kind of gave me strength a little bit to figure out like you know what i can do more than i'm currently doing i should learn more than i'm currently learning um and just so much beyond that and so for, for that part i do want to thank you and the panthers for setting such a great example um because like self-love is the best love and a lot of us lack it because we don't often have the correct model of what that love should be um in america Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> one of the things that really drew me close to the party was the Conradley love, because I had not known anything like that uh, before the party. The first rally I went to, people I didn't know came up and gave me, hugged me, and and talked to me like I was like their cousin. They ain't seen in a long time, mm-hmm. and that's the way it was in the party, you know. And that's the way it is today. If you was in the Black Panther party. Back in the 60s and 70s, uh, we still friends. We still cousins. You can call and sleep on my couch, or if you're in trouble, you know you can call me because we still like that, you know, that unity of love. You know, uh, uh, you know, party members were, were, were ready to die for the struggle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and many party members did. Over 30 party members was killed by local police, agents of police. Uh, then we still got uh, 10 Panthers still who are political prisoners to this very day locked up in, in the prisons of the United States for not because they did any crime, because they are political prisoners, you know? So uh, those are, you know, I work on some uh, committees to free political prisoners and uh, work to free people uh I mean, just to educate people about political prisoners, you know, about Mumia, who's been in jail uh, 40 years, you know, and other political prisoners, brothers who were railroaded to jail, you know. So we have to educate people about not believing everything they read, mm-hmm. you know, about the Black Panther Party, you know, and, and, and exposing the fact that the government had a program called COINTELPRO to destroy progressive organizations. You know, not just the Black Panther Party, but their focus was on the party. But they were using that on on, on Paul Robeson, um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad, the Black Muslims, you know, Marcus Garvey, all those groups. They used COINTELPRO Texas on, but they used them more on the party because the party was more of a threat, you know, because we had social programs. We were changing people's minds. We were we had liberation schools, you know, on Saturday teaching black history classes that they didn't have in many schools in America. I grew up in America attending high school, getting good grades, but I didn't know anything about black history. I only knew about George Washington Carver, you know, and Frederick Douglass and, and, and a few other people. And that's it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we we are uh, we're getting close to the end because I don't want to keep you all day, even though even though I I wish I could. Um, But 
I know uh, eventually I like I was reading some of your story because I, I, I was trying to do as much research as possible before this opportunity presented itself. And so I know one of the things that I found uh, by reading was that you eventually um, rose up to be like an aide to Huey P. Newton. And, yeah. Like how, how, how was that? Because a lot of us will say uh, we will do these weird things like, hey, man, if you could pick five historical figures to invite to dinner. Um, but basically in your life, you have been able to actually sit with the historical figures that I want to invite to dinner. Um, so how was that experience? Well, it was, it was intense because, uh, when Huey Newton got out of jail, Huey Newton became the number one target of the United States government, right? He was on Nixon's enemies list. He was the first name on there. So anybody connected with Huey Newton is going to feel heat, you know, from the government. But him personally, I like to hear, you know, he was a dedicated brother, uh, genius, uh, smooth, uh, theoretical, you know, his heart was in the right place. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I worked with him, uh, I got this assignment. When Huey got out of jail in 1970, he got out on appeal. So that meant he had to go back to court and fight the case again. And so this time I was, me and a friend of mine named Clark Bailey was his aide. So we made sure Huey got to court, you know, on time. We made sure that he was safe, you know. Uh, we sit in court with him all day. Uh, we go to lunch with him and Charles Gary, the lawyer. Uh, when I wasn't, when we didn't have to go to court and we had the day off, I, uh, used to be the aide to the Newton family. So I live kind of close to him. So I would drive Mr. and Mrs. Newton to the pharmacy, mow their lawn, mostly sit around and eat up, eat food that Miss Newton cooked because <laughs> she still likes to cook. And But, you know, more or less, it was good to, for me personally because I could see how the operation ran run on a higher level. And, and also that, that I was a trusted person to be given this job. You know, he's the number one person in our organization, and my job is to make sure he's all right, you know? So those things, you know, until 1974, uh, then it was, then, uh, I left the organization because of things that Huey was doing, you know? He was acting in a sporadic kind of way, and so I didn't join the Black Panther Party for some of the things that he was accused of. And so I left the organization in, in 1974. And um, even though I left the party, I never stopped being a party member. Mm -hmm. So in, 19, in 1995, uh, here in Sacramento, a bunch of our comrades got together and we formed this group called It's About Time. And so... We've been together since 1995, 25 years. We've had over 100 and something events. We have exhibits all over the world. We travel to London, the, the Paris, all these other places because people want to know about the Panthers. And the website is, is the glue because we have over like 3 million hits on our website since it's been up. Because we have people all over the world doing reports or looking to find out about the Panthers.
Mm-hmm. And I put the website up as a way to deal with the rank and file because most websites dealing with the Panthers can only deal with the leadership. Huey mm-hmm. Newton, Elders Cleaver, something like that. Well, there's 5,000 members of the Black Panther Party other than those people. So our website focuses on the rank and file party members and the service that we, you know, gave to the, you know, gave to the community. You know, like I said, we had like 48 offices in 40 different cities all over America. So even though it's been a while, those people have kids. Those people wrote articles for our newspapers. And because I'm in charge of archive, I have copies of the newspaper. So I get telephone calls from reporters, from news services on a constant, on on a day's, I mean, daily, seeking information about the Black Panther Party or doing some research on the Black Panther Party. So it keeps me pretty busy. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad you answered that because that was actually going to be my next question uh, about the the website and how you archive and uh, take care of all of that history. Um, so before we wrap up, I w- I guess I would just like to ask you, um, how do you feel about today's time and everything that's going on in comparison to what happened when you were a young uh, Black Panther member and, and just young and younger in general? Uh, because you, you you saw a lot, you've experienced a lot, and I know in this this new, uh, I guess we could say Black Lives Matter. This movement started around 2013, but it really uh blew up on the scene, national scene in 2014, uh, with the murder of Mike Brown. So it's about seven years now. Um, so how are there any comparisons? But more importantly, do you think? Uh, could you give us advice? on how we should go about doing better work and making our communities better? Well, that's kind of a question that takes a long time (laughs) to answer because there's so many particulars. But I would say that Black Lives Matter is on the right track in terms of dealing with police brutality and educating people about uh, the resistance. But... uh, Black Lives Matter only functions on one in one particular area, you know. They only deal with that police thing, you know. But they're like one issue orientated, which is not bad. But if they could branch out to um, service to the people or awareness programs or, or how to organize communities, that would be a good thing, you know. Uh, being a one issue org- organization, kind of, kind of, you kind of only deal with one issue. So uh, it's not any criticism of them, but I'm just saying they're kind of they only deal with that, and there's a lot of issues out there. So I'm just saying they could use that organization because it's intact, and a lot of people know about it to organize the greater community because there's. Uh, the virus is out there. We need, you know, what made the Black Panther Party a great organization was the volunteerism. It's not that the Panthers did everything that we couldn't. It's the community. Whenever we asked the community to do something, they did. Because when we gave away 10,000 bags of groceries, it wasn't just party members. It was the people from the BSUs, the people from the PTAs and stuff like that. So they need to reach beyond the one issue you know, of police brutality, which is a big issue, but they have the attention now and they should start maybe going to high school and trying to organize young people to deal with situations on campus and so forth. 
Okay, uh, thank you for that. Hey, Jordan, um, do you have anything you want to add before I ask Mr. Jennings um, to wrap it up with his information? No, I just love I love sitting and listening to him just kick game. Um, Same. I hope that um, I love everything he says, right? And, and for me, it like reaffirms the work that we try to do in program, um, you know, the things that uh, the Panthers have been involved in, the programs that they have had, um, and things that we try to build out for the community. Um, you know, we try to to meet those needs. And so I just love, again, hearing it and, and trying to implement, right, listen and see how I can make our programs better, how I can, you know, grow our programs. Just just those different things. And I know, again, those are conversations that I have with Mr. Jennings all the time that I'm just so thankful and appreciative of. Um, we just had a, we're, we're trying to start a grocery program um, here like next month. And so, you know, I had a conversation with him about the most effective way to run our grocery program, right? And so like those conversations are invaluable and that's really, um, again, it gets us back to that decolonized education, right? Because we're always consistently learning organically. Um, and that's how we learned, at least like if you trace it back to the continent, right? We learned through talking with our elders um, and so, um, and doing. And so I'm just, I'm just so thankful to have, um, you know, this connection to a revolutionary who can, you know, guide us Yeah, uh, as we so, want to struggle for the people. Right. And so I, I, I want to thank you for facilitating this uh, conversation, Jordan, because just like you said, I could just sit here and listen to Mr. Jennings kick game all day. Um, and like you speaking about your work being influenced, and I know I can speak about mine. Um, like I've opened food pantries before that not only provided food, but also uh, provided hot food. Um, and we've, we've done things like pay for people's electricity when we had the, the money to. Um, and so like that, those type of things that I was doing was strictly from the reading um that i've done about the panthers but just my life in general um i always look at myself and i say how can i be like those great people that came before me and that's actually the reason like why i'm getting a phd i know jordan you saw i said i wanted to make sure i uh get my master's in history uh after i finished this phd and it was always something interesting because i see people like mr jennings who's a historian and an archivist I know like Huey P. Newton was, had a PhD. Um, I know people like Angela Davis had a PhD, Cornel West. And so I'm looking at how did these people, how were they able to do such intense, but also amazing work under the circumstances, but then go out and put themselves in a situation to say, I'm going to gain this knowledge so that it could be used to be passed down to the people. So it can be used to tell a story. And so, like, in my own life, just like yours, Jordan, I've experienced that uh, that personal influence. And so I want to thank you for facilitating that conversation. And Mr. Jennings, I want to thank you for allowing me the opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you. Okay. Anytime. I'm glad to, to talk about the legacy of the party. You know, one thing I want to say before I leave is our website is www.itsabouttimebbp.com. 
Go to the website, take a look around, go to our menu, check out our audio and video section. We have over 125 videos and audio. We have speeches by Eldridge Cleaver, Fred Hampton, Huey Newton. We have videos from everybody. Also, this year, uh, uh, 2021 marked the 55th year mm-hmm. of since the foundation of the Black Panther Party. We plan on having uh, activities in October of this year, right? And um, one of the themes is going to be service to the community. So at this particular uh, 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 celebration, we're going to focus on young people because we're looking to pass the baton. Yes, sir. So we're going to be looking for young leaders and talking to them about working, serving the community. Yes, sir. Um, so yeah. could you give the website one more time, but also could okay. you give the, the email to order to purchase the magazine? Okay. Okay. The website is, uh, uh, it's about time bpp.com and the order, the order, the, uh, Black Panther Party magazine. Um, you can do it by PayPal by putting in uh, it's about time three at juno.com. Now that is our email, but when you go to our website, you will see that email and you can just latch onto it there and you can um, purchase the, uh, the magazine um, through PayPal, or you can send a check to, to our website address, which is, uh, is on the website. Yes, sir. I'll make sure uh, right. I include that website address um, for everyone uh, right. they want to do that. All thank right. You. Hey, I appreciate you having me on today. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, this You don't know how much this made my day. Uh, just thank you. And Jordan, thank you for facilitating once again. Okay, guys, we're going to log off now. That was the end of our well, conversation. Okay. Take it easy. Thanks a lot. Yes, sir. Have a nice day. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Have a good one. Bye bye. All right, everybody. That what was you the, think, bruh? <laughs> that was that was an amazing podcast, Jordan. I was I was about to text you while we were uh, having a discussion, and I was just about to text you, man. This is crazy, like in all caps. <laughs> crazy, bro. When he was crazy, de- he be kicking game. When he was detailing, um, how he was in high school. Then he met his neighbor who was in the uh, Black Panther Party and he's in class and they're cheering free Huey. Bro, I was visualizing uh, everything that he was saying and I was just sitting over here with chills. Like, I'm I'm privy to this conversation right here. <laughs> like, Crazy, I, I get to he sit here and have this conversation. All the time. Yeah. He be kicking his game all the time. It's, it's crazy, man. Like I said, I want to thank you for uh, facilitating that conversation, bro. Show, man. So uh, thank show. you, I'm thank excited. you so much. I I might have to uh, try to uh, get Mr. Jennings to do like a part two because the thing is, I had way more questions, but I didn't want to like overload uh, like the amount of time that I have for a podcast, and so I was like, I'm going to keep sure. it simple. Bro, I'm about to do a documentary. Oh, that's oh word. That's what's up. That's what's up because I look. Yeah. I was I was sitting here thinking. I was like. I, I was like, I wonder if Mr. Jennings has someone helping him do uh, like an autobiography. 
Yeah, we about to do that too. I'm supposed to help him write that. We're doing a, a documentary on like Oakland and SAC that's going to show at the 55th. Um, my son has a green light to do a freaking graphic novel for him for kids, like because he wants to do a kids book. I'm like, yeah, his breast lit. <laughs> it's lit. So I'm like, somebody should hire me after this. Like, someone. Should... <laughs> yeah. But no, like, no, nah, the information is needed. Because uh, even when I was just trying to do research for the podcast um, about Mr. Jennings's life, I, I ran across so much information um, that I could use. And you could tell Mr. Jennings is a great storyteller because he answers your question that you have before you get to ask it. And so man, the whole time he was talking, I had a question like, okay, I'm about to ask this question next, but he'll answer it before it came. That's why somebody, so a couple times I was like, um, because he answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Oh my oh, God. man. I'm so happy yeah, that this is going to be an episode of the podcast. Uh, man, oh my God, this is, and I'm not going to mention the other person that we talked about me trying to interview, but I'm I'm still going to try to make that conversation with him and Mr. Jennings happen. That for sure should happen. Yeah, so I'm, I'm. I'm a, I'm I'm not gonna speak on it on, on on live because I don't want people to you know I don't want to jinx it or mess it up but I'm gonna try to make that conversation happen. Got to, got to, bro. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Podcast I'm glad. though, uh, don't hang yeah. up. But I'm about to just sign off the podcast. Everybody, thank you for listening to this episode. Um, facilitated by Jordan McGowan, featuring Mr. Billy. X Jennings, member of the Black Panther Party from 1968 to 1974. He's a historian, an archivist. If you want any of the information that he has been uh, like placing into order, any of the information that he has been keeping a hold of, please go to itsabouttimebpp.com. That is this episode of the Things Fall Apart cast, season two, episode two. I want y'all to all have a great day. Bye-bye.